This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin this morning, let's go to the Lord and uh, ask his guidance on our study today. Father, we are indeed thankful we can come to look at your word, which is revealed to us by analogy as a mirror that reflects back to us who we are and what we should be, what our life should be, and how we should live before you. And it is in your mirror, uh, the mirror of your word that we see honestly and accurately who we are. And under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, it is your word that is the primary agent in which he uses to teach us and to change us, to transform us into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, now as we study your word, especially this important passage in Colossians chapter 2. We pray that you would challenge us with the message here, the implications of this passage for our own spiritual life and spiritual growth, that as we think about this under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that he would use this to motivate us, to challenge us, to uh, increase our spiritual growth and spiritual strength that we might serve you more consistently, more faithfully. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. We may not get too far out of verse 6 this morning, but verses 6 and 7 go together. Last week I focused on this section as we come out of the previous couple of verses which end the introduction of this epistle. Now, Paul is writing this epistle to a congregation that exists in a small town in the Lycus Valley, not too far from Ephesus, a little bit less than 100 miles or so, and he has not seen most of these people face to face but he has met representatives from the congregation who have been in Ephesus for business and who have come there to study under him. And he has sent some of his students from the school there in Ephesus who have taken the gospel and the word of God out to uh, the province of Asia, we're told, for two years. As Paul taught in Ephesus, his students were sent out to take, take the gospel and to start churches and to establish congregations. And so they have done this, and as they have brought word back to Paul in Ephesus, 
And they have uh, in Ephesus, and they brought and word has reached Paul now in uh, while he is under house arrest in Rome. Um, he has heard that there are problems with these that these believers are facing as they are attempting to live their uh, Christian life in the midst of an extremely pagan culture. And there's not a whole lot of difference between uh, the culture of Asia Minor in 60 or 58 to 60, early 60s uh, A.D., and our culture. It was an eclectic culture. It was a culture that uh, had a number of different uh, philosophies that influenced the way people thought, and it's a culture that had a number of different religions that were all accepted as all, all being of equal value. Whether you believed one thing or another ultimately didn't really matter as long as it meant something to you and as long as it seemed to give your life some level of meaning and definition. But then as now, when the gospel was proclaimed in that culture, the gospel of Jesus Christ was a gospel of exclusivity, that there is only one way to God. There is only one way of salvation. And that message has always rubbed mankind the wrong way because at the core of the sin nature is an, an orientation to rebellion, an orientation to the self as the ultimate and final authority in life. And man wants to set the parameters, man wants to set the goals, man wants to set the rules. And if he thinks that he has done well enough to please God, then God ought to at least be gentlemanly enough to accept it. And so whether you follow this religion or that religion, people believe that, that that ought to be sufficient. But when a Christian comes along and says, no, it really doesn't matter, we're all sinners, nothing that we do is acceptable to God, the only thing that has value is the death of Jesus Christ, and he alone is the path to salvation, then people get irritated. Now, in our culture, for the last couple of hundred years, that have seen the dominance of Christianity in the culture, those who opposed Christianity did not say a whole lot because they were in the minority, even an extreme minority. But as our culture has moved into this post-Christian era since at least 1963, that's usually the date that is uh, assigned to, to the sh major shift when it became apparent in the culture that we had crossed a line, the majority of people in this country reject biblical Christianity. Fifty years ago, you could say, well, the Bible says such and so, and that was taken as having some measure of significance and authority. Even by unbelievers, it was important to understand what the Bible taught, but no more. In fact, today we live in a culture where Christianity is, becoming, is coming under assault more and more it is, uh, we see this from lawsuits that are brought against schools for any kind mention of Christmas or any uh, time that there is a, uh, a reference to the real meaning of Christmas or mention of Jesus Christ. Uh, we see more and more opposition now even from uh, opposing religions such as Islam and opposition to a Roman Catholic university for having emblems of the cross for refusing to allow Muslims to have their own room where they can
put up their own religious symbols. And this is a private school. Who would have ever thought in this country that we would reach a point where where it would become uh, accepted by a large number of people? I don't know how large that is, but it's enough to where the Islamic community believes that they can at least begin to erode uh, in the, uh, the opposition in this particular area. They may not win this case, but trust me, within 10 years, cases such as this will be won, where even Christian institutions will be forced to uh, remove the symbols and emblems of Christianity because non-Christians who attend that institution uh, claim that they are offended. And, of course, we know from Scripture that the cross is always an offense to some and a stumbling block, a stumbling block to others. So when we get to this epistle to the Colossians, there's a lot of things that we can learn from this epistle in reference to living the Christian life, thinking as a Christian in the midst of a pagan culture that is opposed to what we are saying, what we are teaching. And it's interesting that as we look at this epistle, especially in light of the similarities with, with the epistle to the Ephesians, there are a lot of similarities. Nevertheless, even though similar things are said, similar doctrines are, are covered, we see something else that's fascinating about the Scripture. As similar as Ephesians and Colossians are, they're different. If they were just synonymous, then there would be no reason to include both epistles in the New Testament. But they're different because the epistle that Paul writes to the Ephesians is tailored for the problem that the Ephesian believers are facing, which is not quite the same problem that the believers in Colossae are facing. And so the differences are what's instructive. And part of this difference is that the the, the significance and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ is being specifically challenged in the Colossi uh, environment, that the believers that are living there are suffering from assaults from philosophical and religious systems that say that that's all great what you believe about Jesus, but you need to add some things to that. I mean, if you're really going to have happiness in this life, uh, if you're really going to find meaning in this life, then you need to add some external religious trappings. You need to observe some holy days. You need to uh, abstain from certain things as a sign that you are uh, you have a closer relationship with God. Uh, you need to uh, assimilate certain ideas that we've learned from philosophy that uh, that, that show uh, how that appeal to the intellectual capacity of man and appeal to his brain so that so that he thinks that he has something special because it's so uh, erudite, it's so sophisticated. And these were the ideas that were influencing that church. And frankly, the assaults on Christianity have been pretty much the same for the last 2,000 years. There's always group, a group or groups that come along who think that they have a new twist on Scripture, that they have a new innovative idea that has never before been discovered in Scripture. Now, there are refinements, and there are clearly some 
uh, areas of Scripture and areas of doctrine that have uh, gained a greater focus over the last 2,000 years and been defined more precisely over the last 2,000 years. But frankly, there is little, after 2,000 years of studying the Word, there is very little that is said that someone else hasn't already said. And it's uh, because there are, there's a lot that's out there. There's a lot that isn't really known that much. Every now and then something new is discovered. I remember about 10 years ago, um, I was talking with my friend Tommy Ife, who's the uh, director of the Pre-Trib uh, Rapture Research Center, and some of the men involved in the Pre-Trib Rapture Research Center had discovered a document that had been written by a pastor in Maryland in the uh, early to mid-1700s that was, that was a sermon. It, it had been printed as a tract, and it was a sermon. And it was a refutation of what could only be someone who was teaching a pre-trib rapture. We didn't know who taught it or what, but this sermon could only, because of the things that were said, it, it could only have been a refutation of someone who was teaching a, a, a pre-trib rapture doctrine. Now, up to that point, it was pretty much taught that John, uh, John Nelson Darby, who was named for his godfather, Admiral Nelson, uh, that John Nelson Darby, who was the uh, founder of the Plymouth Brethren and who was the first to clearly articulate a systematic view of dispensationalism in the rapture, that he was the first one to teach about the rapture in the 1830s. Well, this seems to push it a lot earlier. And just recently we've discovered a sermon that was uh, preached by someone whom I don't know. Tommy just told me this a few weeks ago. That was the person that this other individual was refuting. See, there, there's so much that's been taught that hasn't necessarily been preserved or we haven't found it yet. That, that there's nothing, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, and that no one today is going to come along and say, I've got the secret to the Christian life. Now, you'll read a dozen books with that kind of title, but, it's, uh, but there's nothing new. And it all boils down to, basically, do we really trust in Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal God in bodily form, that he and he alone is sufficient for our salvation, and his thinking, the word of God, which is called the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16, is sufficient for us in every area of life. And that's the issue, because the challenge in Colossae was, that's great what you have, but let's you need some other things to kind of refine it and flesh it out a little bit. In other words, you don't have everything, you just have something good. It's a direct challenge to the sufficiency of Christ and to all that he has done. So as we come to Colossians 2.6, we enter into the main body of this epistle, the main focus of this epistle. This is the, as I pointed out last time, the last two verses uh, before this, in the previous paragraph, verses 4 and 5, set up the change, the transition to the main body of the epistle, and then verses 6 and 7, which are actually one sentence in the Greek, uh, take us into the next section and orient us uh, to it. And we find that in this next section, 
which extends down to the closing uh, paragraphs, there are 30 imperatives. We have not seen an imperative mood verb yet in, Col- in Colossians. Now, an imperative mood is a mood of command. It's a, it's a, it is a mandate. It, is either, it either states something positively that we should do in the Christian life or it presents something uh, negatively that we should not be doing in the Christian life. And in Colossians 2.6, we find our first, our first mandate. Now look at the, uh, these verses together as I, as I read them, Colossians 2.4 down through 2.8. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. So there's a warning here that flows through all the rest of this epistle, straightening up our thinking so we are protected, we have a defensiveness to the way we think so that false ideas can't come in and distract us. Verse 5, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, having already been rooted and now being built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it, that is in the faith, with thanksgiving. So this sets up our uh, orientation, and it is those two verses, verses 6 and 7, that really become the uh, hinge verse for getting into the main body of this epistle. And this next section, as I stated, there are 30 imperatives that define or circumscribe the Christian life. And it is in this section that we have these next couple of verses that we have our first two imperative mood verbs or commands. We are told to walk in him in verse 6, and in verse 8, to the New King James translates it, uh, beware, but we are told to, it, it could be looked to or watch out for or see to it that no one cheats you or deceives you through philosophy and empty deceit. What's interesting structurally is that there is not another uh, imperative until we get down to verse 16, which says, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. So this whole this section from 6 down through 15 is the centerpiece, really, of this, this epistle. And if this section from 6 to 15 is the centerpiece of the epistle, the centerpiece of the centerpiece is verses 6 and 7. This is the core message of this epistle, is to walk in Christ, and verse 7 then defines how that walk takes place. It's not just an empty command. The command is going to be followed by the uh, series of four participles in verse 7 that define the parameters for the command, for fulfilling the command of, of walking in Christ. So we have two basic questions here in verse 6 that relate to what is said. The first clause, which is a comparative, as, therefore, as you have received Christ, that's the first statement, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
And this leads to two questions. First of all, how did we receive Christ? If you are to walk now as you received him, how did you receive him? And secondly, the question, how exactly do we walk in him? Now, I'm going to take the second question first, and then we'll look at the first question last. How do we walk in Christ? The command here is from the verb peripeteo. It's a present active imperative. Now, that's important because in, in Greek, a present imperative is the way you're going to express a command that, that's, that emphasizes something that goes on uh, throughout a long period of time. Present imperatives are used to stress something that should be a standard operating procedure in the life of a believer. It is something that should always characterize a Christian's life. It's not, he's not emphasizing something. He's not saying, uh, you haven't been doing this, so you need to start doing this. He isn't uh, emphasizing it and saying, this should be a priority. He's saying, this is to always characterize uh, the life of a believer. It's a second-person plural because it's addressed to the entire congregation, so it's y'all walk. But because it's, it's, it's not going to be fulfilled corporately, he's addressing a congregation, so it's a plural, but it is addressed to each individual within the corporate body of the congregation uh, in Colossae. Now, four times in this epistle, it's... It's used more in uh, Ephesians, I think six or seven times in Ephesians, but in Colossians, Paul uses this this verb four different times. What sets this one apart is it's defined as walk in him. Now, this is a really interesting phrase and something of an exegetical problem because normally for the Apostle Paul, whenever he talks about in Christ or in him, he's talking about what we refer to as positional truth, or what we are, have, what every Christian have, has in terms of their position in Christ. At the instant that we are saved, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection by what is called the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with who he is, and to cleanse us positionally of all sin and to bring us into the body of Christ. So Paul uses this phrase, in Christ, as a technical term, and almost every time he uses it, he always means that. But the other side of the problem here is this is a verb to walk, which is not a verb that is usually used in relation to our position in Christ, but is a command that is usually related to our day-to-day experience of our spiritual life. And even though, and the word is used, uh, the verb peripateo, is used with both, uh, with a variety of different prepositions. In, for example, a verse y'all are familiar with, Galatians 5, 16, Walk in numity, walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. There it's stressing how we are to walk. 
We are to, verse we'll look at in a minute, walk by faith and not by sight. But there it's not the preposition in. It's a different Greek preposition. It is the preposition dia plus a genitive, which expresses a very similar idea to the preposition in, walk, walk by faith. It's, again, an instrumental idea. We're also to walk according to the truth. We're a walk according to newness of life. All these prepositions have different... Uh, uh, different nuances, and in can express both means and a state. And walk is used; the verb is used within in both contexts. So it's a it's a little bit ambiguous as to what this means specifically. Now, some people get a little bit of a uh, a problem when you start saying that the scripture is ambiguous, but that's true. There are phrases that aren't as precise as sometimes we would like them to be. It's easy to jump to a conclusion that because this is in him, Paul uses it about 90% of the time to refer to positional truth, that this has to refer to positional truth. problem with that is that walk isn't a positional truth verb. And uh, so, so this is a, an unusual type of construction for Paul, and I think the reason he uses it is because it should grab our attention because he's stating this in a little bit of a different way to catch and capture our attention. We are in Christ, but we have to walk as though we were in Christ. And I'm going to show you what I mean by that, because this isn't the only place that we have this idea in Scripture. In Ephesians chapter uh, chapter 5, Paul says, you are children of light. That's positional truth. That's who we are in Christ. We are children of light. But then he says, walk as children of light. So there is a correlation, there is a, an overlap between positional truth and experiential truth, that because we are children of light, because we are in Christ, we are to walk consistent with that reality. And so this explains what Paul is uh, focusing on here in order that we uh, understand it. Now, these are the four uses of peripateo in Colossians. Uh, Colossians 1.10 in the introduction relates to Paul's prayer. And in Colossians 1.9, he reiterates, there's sort of a two prayers in the opening introduction which we covered. One mirrors and expands, the second mirrors and expands on the first. And in verse 9, Paul said, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding for the purpose, that's the second verse, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. The end game is our Christian way of life. The end game is the way in which we live. The This word peripateo is used literally in the sense of just walking, just walking down the street, one foot in front of the other. But it is used figuratively to refer to the way a person lives, their, their manner of life, how you live, your, your behavior patterns. So whenever you read this in, uh, in, in the epistles especially, it usually does not refer to the physical act of walking, but it refers to how... You and I are to conduct ourselves, the manner of life we should have, the characteristics of our uh, day-to-day uh, life. Uh, 
And so Paul says in Colossians 1.10 that the goal of learning the Word and assimilating the teaching of God's Word, assimilating Bible doctrine into our soul, is so that we can walk in a manner that is worthy of God. doesn't mean we're trying to gain God's grace. It it, it reflects the fact that now that we've received God's grace, as we come to understand it in gratitude that all that God has done for us, that that should motivate us to live in a manner that shows our gratefulness to God for what he's done, all that he's given us. We're to walk in a manner that does not dishonor who we are, but honors what what God has done for us. And that verse goes on to say that we're to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him by being fruitful in every good work. So the worthy walk isn't based on some sort of subjective standard that you're just going to live as a good person. But that worthy walk is defined by being fruitful in every good work. There is production that comes in the life of the believer. And as we have, as I pointed out last time, we'll see more when we, as we go into Colossians 2.7, Paul uses the imagery of a plant or a tree that is growing in order to communicate the Christian life. Now, a lot of people get in a lot of different discussions of what it means to be fruitful. Now, if you know anything about agriculture, you should know that being fruitful is not something that happens right away. Fruitfulness it does not equate to growth. If you've ever grown in tomato plants out on your patio, grown had a garden, grown anything that produces any kind of fruit, it takes weeks, months, in some cases years, before the plant or the tree will ultimately mature to the point that it produces fruit. Now, we have various passages in Scripture that talk about the fruit that uh, of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 talks about the fruit of either the Spirit or the fruit of life, of light, excuse me. Uh, this is all defined in terms of character qualities. Now, you find a couple of passages where Paul talked about the fruit of his ministry being people who had become saved. But the vast majority of passages that talk about the fruit of the Christian life, it focuses on character transformation, an inward transformation that then leads to external changes. The the focus in fruitfulness is not on quantifiable, observable results. Now, that really upsets some of the people in the lordship crowd who want to say that you judge your, you determine whether you're truly saved by the fruit in your life. But God didn't call us to be fruit inspectors. Uh, We can't look at someone else's life, and because there's certain overt sins that take place there, that that we can conclude anything about their uh, soteriological status, whether or not they are going to go to heaven uh, or not. We walk worthy by being fruitful in every good work and also by increasing in the knowledge of God. 
Now, I'm not going to embarrass anybody this morning and say, well, I'd like you to hold up your hand if you think you're pretty close to the amount of knowledge that you really need from Scripture in order to face the challenges of life. A lot of people would, very few people would probably raise their hand and say that they're even halfway there. But the reality that I see, and some of you may fall into this trap yourself, is that a huge number of believers reach a level of spiritual knowledge and biblical knowledge and understanding, and they think they've arrived. And the next thing you know, they're either not coming to church very much, they just sort of drop out and disappear, or they go to some other church which doesn't really teach that much, but it emphasizes a lot of fellowship, and they sing a lot, and they do any number of other things that that provide uh, social connections, or maybe they get a chance to do some other things, who knows what it may be. But they basically have said, and I've been told by people, that we, we pretty much feel like we've learned what we need to learn. I've even heard a couple of pastors say that. Uh, say, well, I just don't know that I, I, I have that much more to learn. Well, let me see. Have you memorized every verse from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 21-22? Have you, after having memorized all of those verses, memorizing the entire Scripture, do you consistently claim a promise every time there's a problem in your life? These are just some of the basic cognitive goals. Can you clearly articulate to someone uh, 20 or 30 different basic basic doctrines? I mean, that's just cognitive skills. The cognitive skills are not the end game. They're just a means to an end. But I'm just saying that because there's a lot to learn. And there's still more things that we can learn, uh, no matter how much... I find no matter how much I've studied the Word, no matter how much I've studied a passage, I go back and look at it a year or two later, I go, hmm, wow, I didn't see that before. And God's always revealing, in a sense, not that's probably not the right word, but, but as we look at Scripture, things are being exposed to us under the teaching of the Holy Spirit that we didn't see before because we're constantly growing in the previous year, between the last time we looked at a passage and this time, we've learned many other things in Scripture, and so now we bring that other uh, other uh, uh, doctrine, that other understanding, to this verse, and now we see things that we didn't see before. Now we understand things uh, that we didn't understand before. So we're to walk worthy of the Lord. That's the first thing he says in this epistle. The second Verses the one we're looking at, Colossians 2, 6. The third in Colossians 3, 7 shows that walking is often stated in terms of a contrast. We're not to walk, Paul says in Romans 8, according to the world or according to the flesh, but we are to walk, Romans 6, according to newness of life. Uh, Romans 8, we're to walk according to the Spirit. So there's a contrast. We don't walk like the world walks. We don't walk like unbelievers. We don't have a life that ca- that is similar to that of unbelievers, but we focus on have a life that is different and is visibly and observably different. In Colossians 3, 7, uh, which is the last part of a sentence, Paul says, because of these things, that is the various sins that he's listed previously, 
Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And we've studied that term wrath of God in, in, in passages such as um, uh, in Romans where it speaks of the discipline, the judgment of God in time. And it's coming upon the sons of dis- disobedience that those who individuals and cultures that disobey God come under divine judgment. And it's because of that. Uh, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, he says, in which you yourselves once walked. That is, you once lived like that. Your life was once characterized by these sins uh, when you lived in them. But now we live differently as believers. And then the last use of peripateo is in verse 5 of chapter 4. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside redeeming the time. That those who are outside refers to unbelievers, and that the manner of life that we have when we are around unbelievers, either family members or co-workers or friends, that we are to let wisdom, the wisdom of God's Word, characterize uh, our life. And then he says, redeeming the, by redeeming the time. In other words, there should be a sense of why we are involved with others who are unbelievers and how we are using that time in terms of being a witness uh, for him. So there are four times in Colossians that this concept of walking is mentioned. But it's mentioned many, many other times in Scripture. I printed out a list this morning of all of the passages that use this command. And they are far too many for us to cover this morning, but I wanted to go through at least a few represent, representative uh, verses. Second Corinthians 5.7, uh, Paul says that we believers walk through faith. Literally, it's dia, not in. It's not uh, instrumental in the same sense, but it expresses a very, very similar idea. We walk uh, through faith and not through sight. In other words, The Christian life is based on faith. Everything from salvation to the time we die is based on faith. But that doesn't mean we just sort of fold our hands and sit in a corner, gaze at our navel, and say, I'm just going to have faith. Because faith is is a means by which we understand the commands and the prohibitions of Scripture, and we do what Scripture says to do. Faith is not opposed to doing things, because when we have a command in Scripture to pray without ceasing, we do that by means of faith. When we have commands in Scripture that we are not to lie or that we are not to associate with certain uh, rebellious believers then we trust God and we do or we don't do what that command says to do. So faith is not juxtaposed or contrasted with doing something. There have been some who came from our midst at one point who said, well, you don't need to confess your sins, just have faith that you will be cleansed. Well, if all we have to do is to have faith, why do we have any command in Scripture to do anything? See, faith sometimes means I believe this is the right thing to do, and so I'm going to do it. Or Scripture says this is the wrong thing to do, so I'm not going to do it. We walk by faith. 
So when we look at our passage in Colossians 2, 6, and it says, as you receive Christ, Jesus, our Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ? By faith alone. So how are we to walk? We are to walk by faith and not, not by sight. Another passage, Ephesians 5, 2, we are to walk in love. This is, uh, uses a Greek preposition in. Here I think it's walk by means of love. Uh, love is used here as a way that uh, enables us to uh, relate to other people. Walk by means of love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. It's an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. See, this is a verse that brings in both the positional reality that we are in Christ that at the instant that you trusted Christ as Savior, you became a child of light. That is who you are in terms of your adoption into God's family, into the body of Christ. We are children of light. But we can walk in darkness. This is further expanded in passages like uh, 1 John 1, 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. See, you can be a child of God child of the light, and experientially live like an unbeliever. So Paul says if you walk in, if we, we, you say you have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, then you lie and you're not putting into practice the truth. He doesn't say you're not a Christian. He says you're not applying the word. You're not practicing the truth. First John 1, 7, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, that last phrase is a reminder that the basis for dealing with sin in the life of the believer is the death of Christ. That's why he then goes on to say in 1 John 1, 9, two verses later, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why? Because it is Christ's death that already paid the penalty. Colossians, uh, or 1 John 2, 6 says, He who says he abides in him, that's a term for fellowship, if someone claims that they're in fellowship, then he himself ought to walk as he, that is, as Christ walked. So if you claim to be in fellowship, then you should live your life as a reflection of Christ's life. Your character should reflect his character. and You can't manufacture that. That can only come as a fruit of the Spirit as we walk in fellowship walk by means of the Spirit, then he uses the Word of God to transform our lives into the character of Christ. Ephesians 2.10 then, uh, which is follows well-known verse on the gospel, explains that we are Christ's work, or God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, that's not human good, but the only difference between human good and divine good is one's done by means of the flesh and one, one's done by means of the Spirit. So you can go out and read your Bible, and if you're out of fellowship, it's wood, hay, and straw. You read your Bible in fellowship, it's gold, silver, precious stone. See, the act itself doesn't determine whether it's good or b bad, whether it's human good or divine good. Your status of fellowship with God is what makes the difference. So sometimes people get the idea, well, good works are getting involved in charity causes or community service projects or things like that. And that, that's just not true. Community, many community service projects or other things like that, uh, various charities, are wonderful things to be involved with. 
but it has no eternal value unless you're doing it as uh, by means of God, the Holy Spirit. So we're created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand that for the purpose that we should walk in them, that should characterize our life. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, Therefore, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. So we are to walk in a manner consistent with what God has done for us and honor him. In verse 17 of that chapter, he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility or emptiness of their thinking. Now, in conclusion, let me just wrap this up pretty briefly. First of all, what all of this means is that when we conduct our lives, when we live our lives as believers, it's on the basis of faith. We're trusting in something. That's what faith means, trusting in something. We're trusting in the Word of God. And so faith is related, as we've seen in some previous studies, the Hebrew word um, verb aman, as as well as the Greek term, focuses on a sense of certainty and assuredness that something is true. There are degrees of faith, Scripture says. You can have faith like a mustard seed, which is an extremely small seed. So it doesn't take a lot of faith, just a little faith to trust God. Second, we see that Though we live our lives by faith, that is further defined by the positive commands and negative prohibitions of the Scriptures. Positively, that lifestyle that we have as believers should be characterized by truth, should be characterized by love as the Bible defines it. Remember, love in the Scripture isn't sentimentalness, isn't always doing nice, wonderful things for people. You know, God loved the world. Uh, uh, so much that he told the uh, Israelites to completely eradicate, annihilate, and wipe out the Canaanites. He loved Moses so much that he was true to his own character. When Moses disobeyed God, he said, Moses, you can't go in the promised land. That's love. See, we think love is only doing the nice, wonderful, feel-good things, but sometimes love is expressed through uh, discipline and through judgment as well. So we're, our walk should be characterized by truth, by love, by forgiveness, by righteousness, by biblical wisdom, by being worthy of God's grace. Negatively, these passages all teach that we are to walk not in lust or strife, drunkenness, envy, self-centeredness, craftiness. Now, there's an interesting word. It has the idea of deceptive, manipulative self-service. Our life should not be characterized by foolishness or being disorderly or lazy or in lies. Third John 4, John writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth, by means of truth. Very similar phrase. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So how do we walk in truth? We walk in truth by learning God's word, but it's not an end in itself. The end is to transform the way we think, so that it transforms the way we live, so that God the Holy Spirit produces within us from the Word of God the character of Christ, and God is glorified. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to 
be refreshed by your word this morning to focus on this important principle that we are to walk in faith in Christ. We are to walk by means of faith, walk in Christ, just as we received him by faith alone. But that means that we are applying the word. The faith is directed to your word, to the commandments of your word, so that you are honored and glorified, so that God the Holy Spirit takes your word and produces in us a changed character. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the full penalty that by simply trusting in him, you could have eternal life. We could never pay that penalty for all of our works of righteousness are like filthy rags. Only his work has eternal value. So only by relying upon him can you have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that as we study these things today and as we go home and we reflect upon them, that God the Holy Spirit would bring them to our mind and that we would think about what it means to uh, walk in Christ as we received him. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.